Hi there, and welcome to Working Title, a podcast where two writer friends stumble through books we love looking for writing secrets. Like our podcast, we are a work in progress. I'm Leah, and I'm repeatedly rewriting my first 10 pages. (laughs) What a feeling. (laughs) Will I move on? Time will tell. That's the best, the best question to be waiting on. Mm. I am Dana. And I am scrolling furiously through my notes app, looking for good ideas I had at different times than now, when I feel a little out of good ideas. Oh, it's always so comforting to look through that that bank of ideas and be like, I've I've generated a lot of ideas actually. I'm not, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's really nice, especially because. Uh, they're so disconnected from any of my actual memories now. I'm like, yeah. I don't know who wrote this here or why or what even full idea it was connected to. Yeah. There's a lot of just like clearly had some had some beverage, sat around and chatted with friends, came up with something I thought was hilarious, wrote down three words and then moved on with my life. You're like, could that? Okay, sure. Yeah. My other favorite is when I type ideas down and, like, my hands are wet or, like, you know, because maybe I just washed something or I'm just not really paying attention and I look at it and the autocorrect feature hasn't worked correctly because of how poorly I've typed. But I'm like, oh, I can totally, (laughs) I can totally just uh, figure out what that means later. Like, I have full trust in myself to decipher this. And it's just, like, a series of, like, consonants in a row. Totally meaningless. (laughs) <laughs> yep yep fun fun to find the uh the leftover footprints in the sand mm. of previous versions of ourselves yeah what a what a great way to put that that's a lot more poetic than how it feels when i look through this <laughs> but i love it like i said I've, i'm just trolling for creative for creativity right now <laughs> surely we'll have we'll happen upon something in a minute or however many okay. Well, speaking of happening upon something, it was actually, I actually partly picked this novel because I found some of my old essays from college, including one about my writing process, and wouldn't you know what I suffered there. Um, The novel that we're talking about today is uh, Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro, which is a reflective and introspective novel narrated by our main character, Kathy. Kathy, or Kathy H., is introduced to us at the beginning of the novel as a carer. But before we learn what that role entails, the reader is swiftly taken back to her youth as Kathy reflects on her life at Hailsham School and her friendship with Ruth and Tommy, other students at the school. As we watch Kathy, Ruth, and Tommy grow from youth to adolescence and into their adulthood, we increasingly learn that Hailsham is no typical school and the children are being sheltered from a terrible truth about themselves and the world beyond Hailsham's gates. Never Let Me Go is a multi-genre novel that explores friendship, mortality, and morality. And yeah, first first time actually reading it for me, um, I feel like I have spent a lot of time like knowing that this book would connect with me deeply mm. and therefore kind of <laughs> doing that thing where you mentally avoid it because you're like, this is going to take, I'll, I need to have time to process mm-hmm. this when I read it. But this was, yeah, this was a book that you picked mm-hmm. uh, for us to to read and talk about. And I'm very glad you did. Um, but yeah, do you want to start off by just kind of 
giving the lowdown on why this was a book you wanted to go back and reread and chat about. Yeah, so this was this was one of the first books I read in college, and actually I think it was one of the first modern literary fiction books that I read. Mm. And I can't explain fully why I loved it so much then. I think I think I was just partly delighted to be part of a more modern conversation about literature. I'd actually read it right before the movie came out, and our professor decided that we should also go and see the movie. And I remember being very angry about the movie, because I think, I think in some ways, uh, Kazuo Ishiguro as a writer, I find is often like very reflective and introspective, and it's hard to fully communicate that in a movie form. Mm-hmm. I think actually now having read a few of his books, that's something about his writing that appeals to me a lot. So the way that he's able to kind of build up this progressive sense of dread. I think part of what makes Never Let Me Go dystopian, and also I was thinking this because I just read his, um, I think it's still his latest novel, Clara and the Sun. And both of them, I would say, you could think of as dystopian, but he has this way of kind of, like, I feel like a lot of people, when they think of dystopian, they think of a very overt, oppressive system, right? It's very in your face, and the main characters are usually rebelling against it in some way. But he has this way of, of kind of bringing forth the mundanity of dystopia, and he mm-hmm. takes and kind of softening it around the edges. Like he, you, you kind of feel like it's our world, but it's just slightly defamiliarized. Like you're just one step away. And I think that's part of what makes it so effective. I feel like I just went in a bunch of circles, but this novel, yes. it just, I feel like this novel makes, it just makes me think a lot. But I'm, I'm also really curious because this was your first time. And I actually think this is one of, I don't know how much you knew about it before you started reading, but I really think that this novel is better almost if you go in knowing nothing. So I wonder if you knew anything about it. Yeah. How you feel? Oh, I, I totally did. And I definitely had that sense of like, it very much felt like watching the Star Wars movies in this generation where you know from the beginning Luke, I am your Mm -hmm. father, right? And, like, I know from talking to my dad that that was a big, momentous reveal, but that was the first thing as a kid that I learned about Star Wars before I knew who Luke was, right? right? There was Darth Vader, there was Luke, they were related. These were the first facts I knew. And so I did know where this Mm. was going, and there was, I definitely wished a little bit that I didn't Mm. so that I could have experienced that. Um, But... I definitely, I definitely was thinking a lot about that, even, even knowing ahead of time, you know, the first time they start talking about donations and I'm like, yeah, I know, I know what this is. Cause this is, I also haven't, I hadn't seen the movie yeah. either. Similarly knowing, I think that I would have enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> um, and, uh, but what I have done is been on a plane while someone <laughs> next to me was watching the oh. movie. Um, <laughs> You know that yes. thing where you're like, you're watching a movie, I'm not watching anything, but now I'm accidentally <laughs> taking yeah. looks at yeah. your screen. Um, so, like, from that and just from, like, you know, there was, there was, uh, at least again, in, in similarly in my, my English classes, this was very much of the zeitgeist, so I knew where it was going. 
but I, I totally agree with what you're saying too about this is this is part dystopian mm. novel and part like that classic literary fiction uh, novel about nostalgia and mm -hmm. time passing. And they are both there together. And I think you're totally right. Like most dystopian novels we read, the main conflict is the dystopia. The main villain is the dystopian system or various representatives of that system. And the main challenge is between characters who want a different or better life and this system that is uh, restricting it. And while that's very much present here, that's so not the mm. main conflict. You know, none of the main characters are ever like, uh, let's run away or let's break the system. Even when we meet at the very end, we start to realize that, you know, Hailsham was the outgrowth of this sort of activist mm -hmm. movement that wanted to treat these uh, donors, these, these clone children well. It, it's not made clear that they were trying to fight to end this program. They very explicitly say, well, we couldn't, we couldn't take away all these, like, organs from people. That would, that would be wrong, but we, we should treat you like mm -hmm. humans. So, so much of that, although that is clearly, you can see that it's the driving force behind all of the other conflicts in the story, but the main thing that the characters are wrestling with is yeah. each other, not, not with this system. Even when, like, you know, Tommy and Kathy spend a lot of time trying to figure yeah. it out, but it's so much more is about that, like, that tension between when is it better to live in a fantasy, when is it better to know the truth, and that's set in a dystopian mm. world, but, like, that's a classic tension you see in a lot of literary fiction that is very much present in our world, doesn't even play around with dystopia. So I feel like it's a really interesting mm -hmm. mix there. Yeah, and I was actually, uh, surprise, surprise, I was listening to an interview with the author, and he was talking about how, to some degree, it's around our, our generation and maybe a little bit older than us. Um, so that's the millennials um, have, as they've as we've gotten older, have kind of, been more interested in mixing these genres and literary fiction has gotten less strict and he was saying you know 10-15 mm -hmm. years ago back when he published Never Let Me Go he said 10-15 years ago I never would have thought to publish this because it has some of these sci-fi elements and of course this this trope of clone doesn't know that they're clone and is, ter and is terribly abusive system that's one of the oldest sci-fi tropes like the island comes to right. mind um uh, but he was he was saying, you know, I, I, it was really freeing to me to realize how these genres, the lines between genres aren't as firm as they were in terms of how the institution treated them. And that he often doesn't pay attention to genre when he writes. It's often after he finishes writing that people put it into genre. And I, I really loved that because I, I think that's right. And I think that's also part of what makes this novel so strong because you're you the reader has these two these two um tracks of investment right there's the mystery of you know why is the school the way it is um you you might be able to pick up early on especially if you're familiar with sci-fi tropes that you know they're they're clones or but you still have all these words like carers and guardians and donors and it's all, and you don't say the word died, you say complete. Um, 
And he does a similar thing to Clara in Clara and the Sun. Um, but it's really, I think I just love so much that there's this focus on the humanity within the system and the life of just regular yeah. people in the system as opposed to this explosive rebellion, yeah. which we see all the time. Yeah. Well, I feel like what you're saying brought up two things uh, for me, both of which I think I have ranted with mm-hmm. you off mic about in the past. One of them being that um, I think a common struggle that you'll see in a lot of dystopian novels is that, especially if they are set up to be series, but not not exclusively, uh, you set up a dystopian system and usually, you know, the point of or one of the points of the dystopian system is to explain why this dystopia exists and how it is bad, why it qualifies as a dystopic future. And then inevitably, in so many cases, it becomes a story of revolution, which is a very different kind of story. And I feel like a lot of times you watch authors who were able to do that first part brilliantly, were beautifully able to craft and like reveal this dystopian world to us and ask a lot of questions and provide some interesting answers. And then they're like, uh, okay, now this is a revolution. How do revolutions happen? And that's a really hard thing to follow through on. They're like very different skill sets. They're very different kinds of structures. Being, you know, faithful to the reality of revolutions is an incredibly challenging task. And then you're trying to do it in fiction and like keep it true to a world you've already created. It's a lot. And I I think there's something really satisfying about, you don't, I think breaking the genre, right? Writing a literary fiction dystopia in this way kind of frees you up to not even try to do that. Um, There's something there that I want to return to later. But uh, the other thing that I know I have rambled about to you a lot, Leah, is that I constantly struggle with, as someone who loves to write and to read fantasy and sci-fi, the trying to figure out when to do the info dump, right? Trying to do, figuring out when or how, especially if it's like, a world that seems normal, but then there's like, oh, there's this magic or sci-fi element. Like, when do you sit the people down? You're like, magic is real or vampires are real. Like that, I, I obsess over that. That's something that I always struggle with, like how to do it so that it doesn't feel like this like terrible expositional step back. And, and, and I, I pay a lot of attention to that in stories and I agonize over it a lot. And I loved the way, it felt like it really was, the way that that, uh, Ishiguro does it here is very much taking from this other genre, right? From the genre of literary fiction, where it's like, it's said right very early, you know, don't, you don't have to get far into the book before donations are mentioned. And like, the biggest secret is right there up front, but you're only slowly discovering it. Very similar to the way, actually, that the book describes the kids learning about it, right? That they like... They learn about it just when they're young enough to not fully understand it. So that then by the time it actually is all out there on the table, they feel like they've known the whole time and they don't have time to get angry about it. There's an element of that within how the characters find out and also with how the readers find out, right? This kind of building mystery. And then when you find out, it's like, well, of course, this was the only way it could have happened. And I think that also feeds into something else um, as Shiguro was saying about the novel 
because of course a lot of people asked him you know, Kathy and Tommy fall in love they try to essentially petition to the school because the school is known within I guess the sort of clone community as the the best one it's it's one that is rumored to have special power to help save people essentially and they decide to go and ask for a deferral from donating their organs so they can they can kind of uh be in love together and so a lot of readers asked why didn't they just run away and he said well that's the point a lot of people don't you know especially if that you were raised your whole life this you know, you're you're sheltered you raised your whole life understanding that this would be your future most people accept their fate like this isn't you know this isn't the small one percent which that is such a, a valuable story to be told in a way I think sometimes as writers we feel like our story needs to be overtly inspiring and hopeful when it doesn't. And in fact, I didn't walk away from this novel thinking only, uh, this was so depressing and sad. What was the point? Like in some ways it, I don't know if it, inspiring is the right word, but you see so much of what Kathy remembers about her life and all of these little moments that they just feel so human. I guess it's just, it's, it's that. It's that the characters feel so human, and I'm, I'm so sad for them, but I'm also watching all of these moments of joy that she's remembering. Do you get what, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, at least, yeah, like, you tell me if this is, if this is sort of what you're getting at, too. Because um, I feel like one of the things that it... I have such a love-hate relationship with it in terms of, like, I find it deeply unsatisfying, but I but I respect it because, yeah. like, I think that's the point. That feels very much like the point. I'm not supposed to be satisfied. There's yeah. nothing satisfying about this ending. And that kind of stuff drives me up a wall, but it also makes me sit and think. And I think there is a lot of... You know, at no point, even, yeah, at the end, when we're getting this reveal, right, some of the most powerful, uh, explicit mm. lines in the book about what this system is, why it exists, uh, and you have, um, you know, the headmistress of Hailsham saying, we were taking your artwork not so that we could look into your soul, but so that we could try to prove to other people that you had souls at all, mm. right? Devastating line and framing. And still, like, the questions that Kathy is asking there is, like, why do people want us to be treated badly? Like, not why are people raising humans just to harvest their organs, but, like, well, why, why can't we all just live at Hailsham and then grow up and donate our organs and die? You know, like, that's, that's what yeah. she's asking questions about. And, and not even really getting into this, why does any of this exist? Why can't she go out into the world and do other things. I think it's an interesting choice, too, that, like, we hear specifically about, you know, Ruth having, um, you know, these fantasies and these ideals, right? She wanted to go work in an open plan office. Um, and mm -hmm. we don't get any of that from Kathy. Like, at no point does she talk about really what her dream was beyond these nostalgic mm -hmm. dreams of her past, and then obviously this hope for having yeah. a deferral with Tommy. But even then, they she mentions that like they don't they talk about how they 
they don't have a plan. Like, where would they go? What would they do? They're like, we'll, we'll just wait and ask. Like, we don't, they're not asking to get out of it. They're just mm-hmm. asking for a deferral. And it, it does an interesting thing because you're not seeing the exceptions to the rule. You're seeing the rule. You're seeing how this kind of system yep. perpetuates itself at all. But weirdly, you are, you, and it's weird because you're, you're, you actually are seeing an exception to the rule. Kathy's experience is not the rule for clones. But simultaneously, you're, you're not yes. seeing the exception to the rule on a broader scale, perhaps. Yeah. It's, yeah, absolutely. You're not seeing the, 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 yes. you know, the freedom fighters yes. in this system. Mm-hmm. You're seeing other people in it. And yeah, and I think there's there's something very compelling about that in a couple of different ways. One of which, it's it's just a reality of a lot of mm-hmm. ex- people's experiences, right? Like, there's, uh, there's, there's a lot of cases where people are living in terrible oppressive systems, systems that hurt them very materially and very clearly, but they're built to we feel that we're that's okay that's how things are how do you even how do you even think about mm-hmm. or imagine something different right and so there's a there's a reality to that and i think it's important also to tell those stories so that mm-hmm. people can see themselves in it yeah. and see that aspect of it and i also i also think it's important because um i don't fully hold to this belief but there's an argument that I think you'll hear people making a lot of times around mm-hmm. like superhero narratives that when we when we have superhero narratives are so centered in our culture the thing about superhero narratives is they say one special spectacular person is going to save us from this or maybe yeah. a team of special spectacular people are going to save us from this and therefore our job is to sit back and wait to be saved right because it's it's the job of the heroes and the protagonists of these of these stories to save the day. And reading a story where your protagonist is one of those heroes, it's very satisfying because usually it ends with them winning or at least they're like on the journey and you know they're going to win if you because you believe in them. And this is more like I I put this down and I'm yeah. angry. I put this down and I want to go like help break this system even though it doesn't exist. Mhm. I feel more furious at this system because I didn't see anybody yelling about it. I didn't see anybody fighting it. Nobody really makes the case that this system shouldn't exist. No character in here sits and articulates that it's wrong that we, you know, have uh, test tube humans that we then just harvest their organs and they never get to live any sort of independent lives. Yeah. I'm sitting there yelling at the book, wishing I could make that case. And I think that means, yeah, you can walk away mm-hmm. thinking about it a lot more than if you were like, yes. there was a problem and the hero fixed it. Like now, no, there's still a problem yeah. and my brain is still working on it. And that is a tremendous power to be giving people this lasting impression of, wow, there are some systems that really need to be questioned and broken. Yes, I think that's exactly it. And I think it's also partly, I think there's a tendency, because it, it is, it, to a degree, a tragic story, right? The ending is not happy. The tragedy. It's not happy on a personal nope. level. No, nope. it's tragic. It's not happy on a societal uh-uh. level. Like, society has actually, like, 
in the end, Kathy is told, like, yeah, you were basically one of the lucky ones, and there's there aren't going to be any more people like you. Like, you, the person who went to a school where the toys that you got to play with were the rejects, like, the ones that were thrown away, that, like, where you got, to, where you lived, you had to sleep under, like, old curtains and pieces of carpet, where you're, you're basically, like, you know, probably around our age, and you're like assigned to death and in between that time you're taking care of other people who are dying nonstop. you were one of the lucky ones and now everything's going to get worse like the ending is is tragic and infuriating on multiple levels i think there's a tendency when someone goes to write a story and i maybe about an issue or to write a story that they know is it's going to be tragic they make it into trauma porn mm, mm-hmm and this story was not trauma porn. And it reminds me of, like, what you were saying about the nostalgic dreaming um, and the places where she found some some hope and some joy. Like, I feel like that drives home the tragedy. It, it For me, I was just despair. Yeah. Like, the, the despair of it feels so much sharper because for a moment, you... It's, it's also interesting because... Kazuo Shiguro is known for writing stories about memory and stories about delusion. And there's a part of you, as they're hoping for that better future, that knows it's delusional. Mm-hmm. You're like, there's no way this is going to be true. But you're still hoping for it anyway, a little bit, along with the characters. Oh, yeah. And just, oh, it's, it, that's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Tragedy all the way down, baby. Mm-hmm. Slaps top yeah. of Never Let Me Go. This baby can fit <laughs> so much tragedy. Yeah. It I and this is where I come to as far as like, um I think I think I knew. I mean I knew that that was going to be the kind of book that this would be. And I knew that mm-hmm. it would be beautiful and wonderful because everything I'd heard about it suggested it was. And I think subconsciously that's a huge part of the reason why I put off reading it or even watching the movie for so long uh was that I am I am very bad at reading these stories like I'm I'm a hopeless romantic and I love when you when we can acknowledge the actual nuance in the world that not everything has happy endings and sometimes there's literally no happiness to be found in the ending and that's not the point of the story right you made me believe in a couple and they don't really get time together and the time that they get is Mm -hmm. so overshadowed by the just totally screwed up realities of the the world that they're living in and you know the 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 people who were i mean there aren't super villains in this as much as like but the antagonists don't really get you know, any sense of justice, right? Neither punitive nor transformative, right? Like we just, there's Mm -hmm. just nothing. The bad things happen, the good things happen. And in the end, you know, Kathy's left staring at a field full of garbage dreaming. Like, whoo. And I'm still sitting there like, I'm just still so mad at, at Ruth. I'm mad at Tommy. I'm mad at... You know, I, I just, like, find myself furious. Even as I'm sitting here, like, this is... It would be it would be a worse story if it gave me what I wanted. But I'm still mad because I <laughs> wanted it. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it it just wasn't building that way. No. Unfortunately. At no point was anything I wanted going to happen. No. I, so I think part of the reason why I wanted to reread it again was because I wanted to better understand how he did that. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is, I think part of it is this use of first person and I'm not sure if this is 100% true. This isn't this isn't something that I've seen as often in a in adult fiction and in literary fiction. I think there's a tendency to view first person as kind of juvenile. Mm-hmm. But it's very useful if you're writing this type of introspective novel, right? Especially where, one in where the narrator is hiding things from the reader. Mm-hmm. Maybe not intentionally, because it to me, the flashbacks don't necessarily feel like she's hiding things. It's just that's how people tell stories naturally. Yeah. But she's also kind of hiding things from herself, I feel like. Um, throughout Throughout the years, you see there's this kind of use of dramatic irony where it's like, you know, if I'd known now or if I'd known then what I know now, there mm-hmm. are definitely moments like that. But I also wondered, did you get the sense that she was being fully honest with herself as she told the story? She seems, she's, she's also very interesting because she's such a reserved character. Yeah, well, I think I got the sense that, yeah, that this was someone who, while being very introspective, was very intellectually introspective mm-hmm. and not so emotionally not least being that literally the first time that any anyone states out loud that Kathy has any uh, special affection for Tommy is Ruth being like, I know yeah. you've been in love forever and I kept you apart. And we don't get, we don't even get Kathy saying like, that was the first time I had ever thought of such a thing. Like there is no analysis of that. There's just sort of an acceptance that Ruth is right. Mm-hmm. But we've been in Kathy's head the whole time as she's look, been looking back on her memories and she doesn't say, you know, that's when I first started looking at Tommy differently or, mm-hmm. you know, I, like we don't get to see any of her emotional journey in that way in terms of like her actually falling in love with him. Mm-hmm. You know, Ruth says it out loud and we know it's true because we've been watching the little pieces pile up and extrapolating, but she's not giving us the the emotional thing I think, yeah, the uh, the time quote that was on the cover of the copy I got referred to buried anguish. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's it. Like, she's very introspective. She's not denying that the feelings are there, but it's buried so deep down that she's like, yes, and so we were, we were in love, so we went for a deferral. And you're like, there's a lot more there. You watched your best friend be with this guy you've been in love with for years. Yeah. And there was definitely a lot of tension there, but the tension was never, you know, her describing how she felt when they were kissing. Just her noticing that, you know, they did kiss in public, but less so than other couples. Um, And describing, you know, some of her irritation about Ruth's habits and the way Ruth kept trying to copy couple activities from other people. But that was so not addressing, like, the, how do you feel that it's Tommy's arm that she's tapping on? Yeah. To go. So I feel like that's a lot of it. And I feel like... I I agree. I think that this is made... I think that's a powerful move because 
establishing that that is how Kathy is about love and her feelings about Tommy also makes it very possible that, that she is being that way about any feelings she has about this system. Yep. Because she's been, she's been a carer for so long. You know, there's even, there's a, there's points where characters ask her about it. They're like, you've been a carer for a really long time. Don't you want to just like relax and start your donations? And she doesn't want to. And she's not able to really give a satisfactory answer. And maybe it's that she doesn't want to die. Yeah. But she doesn't say that. Yep. Right? But it's a very possible interpretation of that if you know that she's a character who she's telling you the truth as best as she remembers, but not how she feels about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, I feel like that's another choice that, I don't know, if I were in his shoes, I would be afraid to make that choice. Yes. Because I would worry <laughs> that if I'm, if I am not writing a character who is more, especially from first person, from first person, who is not more in touch with their emotions, the reader won't feel it. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, again, I felt worse. Like, I felt worse. Like, I, I wanted to just hug her. And it, and it made the system feel even more unfair to have to have a character who is not acknowledging. It's sort of like when you're talking to a friend and they're telling you about their, their trauma and they're telling you about some of the worst things that have happened in their life. And they're like, but it's okay. And you're like, no, it's not, it's not okay. It's super not. <laughs> and I want to fight everyone involved in letting this happen to you. Yeah. 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 It, um, I totally feel that. And it, it reminded me of some of the most wild, emotionally visceral moments are so not presented that mm -hmm. way. They still are visceral. But it reminds me a lot, there was um, a creative writing teacher I had once who um, really hated uh, expressive dialogue tags. Um, he thought that, you know, saying like, anything beyond, you know, he said, she said, these, they said, uh, would be like too much, right? Not, you know, wasn't even a big fan of like, they whispered mm. or... But certainly not the ones where it's like, you know, she snarked out mm. or she, you know, like all the different like dialogue tags. Right. Um, he was a big believer in like, no, they should be straight and plain and to the point because the dialogue should be carrying it, right? You shouldn't need to say that they shouted. It should be clear from the, or you can express it in other ways. Again, like, I like, it's interesting to talk about hard and fast rules. I don't think hard and fast rules exist for writing. Mm -hmm. um, but it's an interesting point and I think there is some validity to it. And honestly, some of the most visceral dialogue reminded me of that. And it reminded me almost of reading like a play yeah, or like a script where it was like, yeah, the emotion is clearly here, right? You know, when Ruth goes on her rant about how we, you know, they all know that they're not going to be modeled from anyone who's like living a good life. They're going to be modeled off of people who, you know, have no other choice, who are going to be, you know, selling their whatever, their, their, their model for for clones mm -hmm. um that's a visceral series of fairly direct and awful statements that she makes and it's just sort of presented that way yeah. and there's not a lot of description of her face or her voice or anybody else beyond like you know there was a silence or and then and then moving on like it's 
in those moments where things are most visceral, there's some just, it's, the description just skates over it. Mm-hmm. Same, same with the, like, scene where Kathy and Tommy are asking for a deferral. And we have, you know, the headmistress explaining all this awful stuff. We have some fairly extreme outbursts from, uh, Madame. And there's not a lot of description of the emotional, like, any emotional signs from these speakers or from your point of view character. And it's... It's funny, because, like, there's parts of it that therefore feel very disjointed and unsettling. But that's a a really interesting choice in a lot of ways. And I think you're right. Like, it's a very brave choice. Because there's so many times where I'm like, okay, I'm trying to be understated about this. Is anybody going to get it? You know? Am I being too understated? Are people going to miss this? Um... Or am I worrying about that so much that it's like every other page I'm trying to drop hints that these two characters are into each other and now it's too much because, like, now it seems like I'm not having faith in my reader. Like, there's a really, there's an important but hard balance there. And, yeah, I mean, again, I think in a lot of places it did not feel satisfying to me, but I I feel like that was very much the point. So it, it excelled <laughs> at making me feel dissatisfied and uncomfortable and sort of making those moments visceral even though the author didn't explicitly describe them that way on the page yeah i think it's also the the juxtaposition in the types of conflicts that the main characters have with each other because they'll have conflicts over you know i'm thinking about when Tommy showed showed Ruth and uh, showed Kathy separately his little made-up uh, uh, mechanical animals that he was drawing. And Kathy mm-hmm. with, with Tommy was, you know, very supportive and with Ruth was kind of making fun of it. And then later on, they, uh, Ruth and Kathy get into a fight. And as a result, later on, Ruth reveals that Kathy laughed at Tommy's drawings, knowing, because they've known each other for so long, that Tommy would get really upset by that. So you have these these kind of conflicts that, that feel, um, again, almost mundane, like just an everyday sort of relational conflict. Deeply mundane, And then yeah. all of a sudden you have that moment where Ruth is confronting head-on all of these things that none of them are talking about. And I, I think this is another thing that, to me, feels very real. Like, I think a lot of people would react like that. Like, you know, I if there are thing, certain things that you know are going to happen in your future and they're, they're scary and terrible, you're probably mostly going to just try to live your life the best you can. But every once in a while, it's going to be unbearable and you're going to talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. So I feel like the the pacing and kind of... I guess, cadence of those outbursts, not just from Ruth, but also from the teachers. One teacher in particular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It felt very, very real. I I feel like it was very much all the characters were presented in an attempt to be as real as possible, and rather than to be, you know, representatives of something X, Y, or Z, uh, which I think is also fairly uncommon a lot of times for dystopian mm-hmm. novels, right? It's it's often easier to say, 
to present characters that represent different aspects of a system in order to explain and dramatize the system that you're trying to to put into focus um but this yeah this feels much more like somebody sent a literary fiction novel from an alternate universe where this this you know organ donor system exists right this is this is the literary fiction of that world in in a lot of ways as opposed to um you know it's not working that hard to explain the system to us at all there's so much that we just never get into about how the system works because the main characters don't know about it and aren't really thinking or caring about it and that's not the focus of the story the focus is that these are just real people who happen to be interacting Mm -hmm. in this system and yeah and again like i think you're right like we're dealing with this like these enormous life-shattering lives shattering uh conflicts and and systems and oppressions but you know we also spend a full chapter on a pencil case yeah because that because this is about memories and this is about childhood and that feels deep deeply relatable in that same way that and and deeply frustrating in the way that i feel like a lot of times like looking back on things like that in childhood where you're like my god what small things but they weren't small Mm -hmm. they were huge at that at that time and i'm not sure why distance from it should make those feelings any any smaller yeah it also reminds me of how when they at the end when they talk to madame and miss emily they ask about miss lucy who was the teacher that kind of had several outbursts she was angry because she felt like the children weren't being properly prepared for their future and that their future was being kind of shielded from them and that and that shielding might not enable them to live their life to their fullest essentially Mm -hmm. and miss lucy had a huge impact on the kids but then you talk to miss emily and she's like miss lucy trying to remember she was with us for such a short time and it wasn't pleasant but like oh I guess if she was your teacher at that time you know that must have had a huge impact on you and so it's like even Miss Lucy who I think is the one person who who expresses real anger about the system outside of you know I think Tommy and Ruth both have their moments but outside of the clones she is a blip in that system yeah like you're you're told at the end that this person who had a big impact on Kathy and Tommy in particular and how they thought about their life and the big scheme of things doesn't matter. Yeah, and it's interesting because I feel like, again, it's not made explicit, but my read of that was that, you know, why should they be informed? So they could try to do something different, Mm -hmm. right? So they could try to change the system, so they could know what was coming and make different choices, so that they could be aware and maybe break the way it works instead of live more happily within the way it works, which seemed to be the Hailsham MO, right? It was like, this is this is a strange dark world. Let's give them a beautiful childhood that sets them up for these short but beautiful lives. And and it, it, it felt to me like the the Lucy case became like, no, they need to be informed because people should know what's happening to them. Mm-hmm. But why why should people know what's happening to them? Not because it makes living it any easier, but because it makes changing it easier. Wow, it's interesting that you felt that way. 
I didn't not your take yeah it's certainly not explicit that was that was just my read on it of like that was and and you know that maybe miss lucy hadn't even fully thought that out to herself but that that was part of why she realized she just needed to get out of there yeah i well i think it's it's hard to face and i mean also i know that the the other teachers they even talk about how they were dealing with a lifetime or maybe not like a lifetime but a long period of time where there had been kind of fear-mongering around clones. And this mm-hmm. was before the scandal where, as as it turns out, some scientist was essentially doing fancy eugenics. Um, but it, the way it's termed is, like, gen, you know, genetically enhancing children, and people got afraid that the clones would become better. And th- So this was prior to even that. There was still fear around them, and some people even said mm-hmm. a sort of disgust. And the teacher, some of the teachers admitted to being like, yeah, I had to, I was unsettled by you and I had to overcome that every day to offer you some of this life. It's interesting, like, I don't think, I didn't get the sense that Miss Lucy was outwardly trying to help them break the system in a a super meaningful way. I think it's, I think it was partly like, she couldn't she couldn't handle seeing it play out that way. Like imagine going in every day and, and teaching kids. And even you think about the delivery drivers, you see all these kids, they're really excited for these toys and they're like, Oh my God, is, is it a good one? Are there going to be good ones? And you just have to be like, yeah, sweetheart, they're going to be good ones. Knowing full well that you are talking to someone that is going to be killed for the rest of society, like their their sole purpose, that this is why they're existing. Like imagine walking in and trying to teach someone every day and knowing that the kids have no idea, they're not prepared. And may, maybe right. if you prepare them, they'll challenge it and maybe they won't, but at least they should know. Like that was my feeling of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that I think that that totally makes sense. I, I, I'm not surprised that you leaned more into that interpretation yeah. though. I think that <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean I think that that for me too I, I and not to say like I don't think that like Miss Lucy was a secret revolutionary or even not so secret. Um but more that I feel like to me I feel like that was the tension that was being drawn out mm-hmm. there was that yes, the sense of well they deserve to know. Yeah. I think is easy to come by and not think of that as being a revolutionary sentiment which I think was what she was doing, right? You should know more than than they're telling you, than we're telling you. But I think when you examine that statement, and I think this is a, a big part of that tension too that, that is sort of drawn out, is that like, is it better to believe a fantasy when the reality is so painful? Mm-hmm. And we see, you know, Ruth, right, is our sort of pinnacle of, yep, fantasy's better, always choose fantasy. <laughs> Let's live the life where everything I want is going to happen and is true. And then uh, Kathy and Tommy kind of opposite who are spend more of their time at least like trying not opposite because they definitely still get caught in these fantasies, but um, spending more of their time trying to figure out the truth and certainly learn more of it and come to face more of it, particularly near the end of their lives. But I think that's that that to me was the tension with Miss Lucy was that it, it felt like we were watching her, um, again, in these sort of brief chapters where she existed, mm-hmm. um, wrestling with 
feeling desperately that they deserved to know more, mm-hmm. but being unable to articulate why that would be better. And I think the thing is, is that it's more information is better so that you can change a thing. And I think that 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 to me was sort of what I that to me was somebody wrestling with, you know, it feels like they deserve to know. But what good will that do if I if I don't believe this thing is changeable or should change Mm. or whatever? Like, what good does more information do? That's a first step to change. But is that what I'm trying to build here? I don't know. It's interesting because we see her so briefly. Yeah. And I mean, even Miss Emily reveals that she was asking those questions early on. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like you have a kind of Miss Emily in the middle, and then on one side you have Madame, who is like, this was all pointless, and this has all ended terribly, and it's it's really, it's not that she's actually like, this is pointless, it's that she's so angry that she's kind of fallen into this cynicism, and Miss Lucy, who's who is also angry, and, and doesn't, because of course the other question is like, they're children, like, okay more information is better when like when Mm -hmm. is it just purely traumatizing when will it help when will that's also another you're raising a human being yes and knowing that they are 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 being abused by this system that they don't fully understand and that they understand even less because of this dream that you're trying to put them in and i i think Going back to what you were saying about how she wasn't an explicit revolutionary, but where does revolution start with this kind of quiet questioning of things? And I think this is maybe another good example of, I guess, the the complexity of um, a society level morality and making making changes to that morality and those ethics. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's Honestly, I wasn't sure how I would feel rereading it. I was really worried. So I read it when I was 18, and it's been like a decade. So you're always a little bit concerned that it won't it won't impact you in the same way, and it, it will be worse. And right. actually, I feel like it hit me even harder this time. It, it sort of yeah. reminds me of what... Uh, Patrick Ness was saying about this book he wrote called A Monster Calls, which is is really about grief, and he said it's it's actually the older people are the older people tend to have a more emotional reaction to it because they've had more time to experience grief in their lives, mm-hmm. and I think also just you know working in the field that I do, and you probably feel similarly, you know as a when I was younger, like I was aware of these systems to a degree. I understood theoretically how hard they would change or how hard they would be to change. I I understood a lot of these things in theory, but understanding more of them in practice, I think made it more devastating. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like there's always, there's a, it's really important. I think always to be cautious because, uh, there's a lot of times where oppression in fantasy or sci-fi, mm. right, is used as um, a really inadequate mm. uh, parallel or a way to talk about oppression in the real world. And maybe what I'm more accurately saying is there's a lot of times where real oppression narratives are exploited in order to be used for yeah, fantasy and yeah. sci-fi. 
And so it's always, I think, thoughtful. It's it's important to be thoughtful about like drawing those connections. But I think there is there's a lot. I that definitely hit me right. It's a different kind of oppression uh, in this book than certainly the systems that we currently mm-hmm. have. But you know, yeah, certainly, certainly the bit at the end where we have you know the activists talking, I certainly connected to where they were like, yeah, there was there was a moment where people wanted to be nice to you, so they gave us money. And then they stopped wanting to be nice to you, so they took the money away. And in in at no point in there was anybody saying, Stop the thing that's wrong. You know, it was just can we can we make can we make the wrongness, you know, smoother, easier, prettier, more pleasant, more palatable. Mm-hmm. Which is is also a real thing, yeah. right? Like there's there's a degree to which like you know, these are lives, short lives that, you know, were made, were, yes, filled with buried anguish, but were not filled with physical deprivation in the way that it sounds like existed in this system outside of these mm-hmm. characters that we get to mm-hmm. see. So it's not to say that there's not uh, value in making things, you know, in in trying to do things like harm reduction or whatever, but there's it's also so easy for um, people to sell things as harm reduction when they're really just let's pretty up this awful system that we benefit from yes the the whole you have to understand this system benefits other people so much and a lot of these people Mm -hmm. are also afraid of their own mortality uh, also afraid of their you know potentially their own position within this system and are also powerful so you know we did what we could there's this kind of right and like it's not yeah, it's not at, it's not made explicit super much really until that last conversation, mm-hmm. right? But that is I mean the whole narrative of like you have to dehumanize yeah. the people that you're exploiting and oppressing in order to justify the perpetuation yeah. of the system. Right? And the fact that they're like, "Yeah, we were trying to prove you had souls." And they're like, "What? Mm-hmm. Of course we have souls." We have souls and of course it's natural for us to, you know, grow to our, you know, peak adult health and then have our organs harvested and die like they're on the level with i mean we're super people but and also we're fine existing in this system to some extent right buried buried anguish about the system and the place they find themselves in but certainly not any outright rejection of it but they're like but of course we're also people as this happens and the rest of society has to say no you're not you're not people because we couldn't do this to people because it's wrong to do mm-hmm. this to people. Even while at the same time they've convinced, at least on some level, a lot of the people subject to it that they do deserve it. It's, yeah, I agree. Like, a lot of that hits harder when you've you've spent time either living in, around, you know, in interaction with those kinds of systems and have a sense for yourself, like, yes, this is this is often how it goes. It's so hard to actually do, you know, forget revolution, just friggin' resistance mm-hmm. is hard as hell. Oof. Mm. Yeah. It's heavy. It's, it's a heavy it's a it's tough. It's a heavy book. But there I think I think the again, the heaviness is tempered. Like, I think if that's all he did in this book, this book would not be readable for me. Oh, but yeah, it, no. <laughs> it's because, and again, I think it's partly because he actually sucks you in initially with these happy childhood memories with this slight mystery. 
And so you're you're spending all of this time like, you know, I found I got really wrapped up in and Tommy and Ruth and Kathy's relationship. And there were moments where I was just like, Ruth is the worst. Like, that's what I was focused on. Like, Ruth is a bad friend, oh, you know? Yeah. Like, these, again, these are just, like, normal oh. human things. And I feel like, t- maybe not for others, but, like, the longer you step away from the book, the more the heaviness of everything else settles on you. Like, while you're reading, it's there, certainly. But you also, again, have these everyday things that you're focused on in Kathy's life that yeah. it, it tempers it and you it's like you need a little bit of space. It's that last conversation that really, I think, triggers a lot of it. And then space from the book, the longer you spend away from the book, the more you're pulled toward this bigger reality away from the nostalgic dreams that made it easier for you to digest as you were reading it see i think that that's that's so interesting to hear um i totally see what you're saying and at the same time um i'm not sure that i personally felt like any of those memories were happy interesting um and maybe just because like there's a degree to which um i still we're not gonna do it right now Nobody needs to hear it. It's very old news. But I still could rant for a long, long time about the teacher in To Kill a Mockingbird who tells Scout that she she learned to read wrong mm. because it made me so angry. And what made me angrier was that in the book, nobody told the teacher that she was wrong, right? Atticus is like, it's fine. Scout, you just keep doing what you're doing. Teacher's bad, but like, whatevs. And I was like, no, somebody go tell off that. Like, I just got so infuriated about that. And basically just copy paste me at Ruth for every <laughs> friggin' flashback. I'm like, Ruth, you suck. Ruth, this is terrible. Like, even when there was like a good moment with Ruth, like she's nice about the tape. I was still like, did she steal it though? Did yes, she I wondered that too. I bet Maybe she stole the, um, because I was just, so it's funny because Kathy, I'm glad that Kathy finds peace about it, but I have no peace about it. I'm glad that she's like, I've forgiven Ruth. I remember why we're friends, but I'm like, I don't know why yeah. you're friends. This person has been terrible to you. I also don't know why we're not addressing the fact that like Ruth's like, I kept you guys apart. And it's like, I don't know, takes like two people to date each other, but I guess we're skipping past uh, any of Tommy's responsibility for being in a relationship. But also like, Nah, Ruth was just a terrible friend through most of those memories. Um, so I feel like it's funny, like, it's it's interesting because I totally hear you on, like, that being a juxtaposition. And I totally agree that it's a juxtaposition in terms of, like, the mundane and then these, like, bigger existential, you know, things. But for me, it was it was almost, frankly, the same feeling of watching a thing that I knew was wrong, but being utterly powerless to do anything about it, or even to communicate to Kathy the level at which I was upset for her and like wanting to connect with her and be like, you need to drop this friend. And also you need to run away. <laughs> it was funny because like, it was very different scales, but for me, it, it, it was 
it was sort of a relief in the way that like when you're getting a tattoo and then they switch to a different part of your skin with Mm -hmm. the needle so you're like oh okay we're done we're done just hurting that part but it's just moved right it's not that they took the needle away and you're no longer you know getting this tattoo it's just moved to a different spot which makes it feel like relief but also just kept for me building that tension so that at the end i'm like I, I, I told you before I recorded this, I was reading this on a, a six-hour plane flight where then I'm sitting there uh, weeping and filled with rage <laughs> next to some very nice stranger I apologized <laughs> I should have warned you a little bit more. Um, I knew it was coming. I've done this to myself before. I need, I need to be smarter about this. Yeah, I don't... I guess I should say, like, I don't think it was my intention to suggest that these memories were objectively happy. I think it's the mm, it's mm-hmm. the nostalgia around them that tempers some of it. Yes. But I also think that there were moments that were, for Kathy, happy moments. And it reminds me sometimes, mm-hmm. like, there are moments in my life that I personally love and feel very happy about, but other people are like, that's that was your life. You know what I mean? And I'm just like, yeah. And so, oh, yeah. like, now that I'm older, I'm simultaneously like, yeah, that was probably not the best, but also I still have fond memories of it. Sort of, like when I think of like yeah. the exchanges, for example, where the kids would make things and exchange them with each other and they would treasure them, like that sort of memory. Like I think you as the reader, you know that there's something kind of sad about it as well, but there's also a kind of wistful and nostalgia right. about it and you see how much it means to Kathy. And I think yes. that's what tempers some of this overarching societal awfulness and even to some, cause I was angry yeah. at Ruth a lot as well. To some extent, you know, what happened with Ruth, it's when she's talking to like, she's talking about some of the teachers who were very kind or just, you know, running around with the girls when they, when they were all part of that society that was protecting one teacher who they decided was their favorite or, um, I, even when Ruth, when, when she was young, was saying, you can play with my horses, too. Like, these these things just feel like something that kids would do. And I think we all totally. have those sorts of meaningful memories. And that when we look, when we look mm-hmm. back at our life, we also realize that this is part of what makes us who we are. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would totally agree. I think you're I think you're 100 percent on it there. It like. Yeah, it was, and that's part of why I didn't just walk away, like, mad at Mm -hmm. the book, right? Because as much as these memories, to me, like, the impact on me seeing them as a, you know, as a reader was deeply frustrating Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, definitely kept building that tension for me. But it was also very clear that that was not, like, there was some degree to which those memories had that impact on Kathy, but there was a lot more there for Mm -hmm. her. And that felt very real mm-hmm. and true. I think, you know, I think this book has, has a lot of different angles that you could talk about it at or within or from. So many layers. So many. Like an onion. Yes, like an onion. An onion that makes you cry. Oh, <laughs> so much crying, <laughs> Leah. So much. Yeah. Let's like let's read a romance novel or something next. I yeah, <laughs> honestly, we probably probably need a need a break. Did you? It sounds like you really like. I think I came away from it, and I think this is probably solidified as one of my favorite books. 
I don't know mm-hmm. if, how you feel about it. Oh, yeah, no. I loved this book, and I think it's definitely it's definitely going to stick with me for a really long time. You, you were privy to my struggles at first, uh, trying to check out a copy from the library and being foiled at every turn. And I'm really glad, honestly, now, because now I have this copy myself, mm-hmm. and... I, I've already filled it with some notes and I know I'm gonna, like, this is gonna be one that I have to return to, to reflect on, to think about, to dig into deeper. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really glad. I feel like it's, it's fun. You know, I know a lot of times, like, we're specifically picking books for this podcast that we can try to learn from as writers. And I think there's, there's obviously plenty, uh, to be inspired by and, different techniques and the the you know use of timelines and and memory and when you're doling out information and all of that can be analyzed from a craft perspective um but i'm not gonna lie i'll probably have to reread it again to focus more on that because there's just so much of this that i felt like i was getting out of it as a reader and as a human Mm -hmm. before i was able to even really engage the like let me interact with this as you know a writer trying to learn yeah and um and as much as I'm like, yeah, I really, like, I kind of wish I could have read it twice before we talked because I feel like I'd be more prepared with like, well, these are the writerly things I'm trying to take from mm-hmm. it. But also to me, that's a sign. That's a sign of a book that does a really good job that it's like hard for me to take that step back and analyze because I'm just in the thick of it emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think you also, when you feel ready for it, I think you should also read Clara and the Sun. They reminded me. Oh, yeah. Like, it, Clara and the Sun reminded me so much of Never Let Me Go. To They almost, to me, felt like they were in the same universe, especially when they were talking about the Morningdale experiment at the end of Never Let Me Go. I won't reveal any more than that, um, but uh, similar feeling. She grows a very skillful writer. Oh, yeah. Uh, I... I, I yeah, I was going to say, I definitely feel like, I mean, I've broken the seal now. I always knew that this would be a seal to be broken. Also because I'd never read any of Ishiguro before, but I had seen the adapta- the film adaptation of Remains of yeah. the Day, and it broke me down to my, like, base parts as a human. Yeah. Which was also probably part of the reason I kept putting this <laughs> off. But yeah, I'm definitely going to, and if Clara and the Sun, I, I will add that to the list. Maybe that's Maybe that'll be my next project. I'll alternate between... <laughs> Um, Ishiguro and romance novels. That would <laughs> be. That's that's a whole other podcast idea right there. Maybe we should. <laughs> it's, it's like it's like when you were a kid and well, it's like when you were a kid but more intense when you would go between the hot tub and the pool over and over. It's very much that sensation. Bold of you to assume I left that behind when I stopped being a kid. <laughs> Fair, yeah. It's still fun as an adult. What am I saying? I, I like it, and I think, you know what, it would be great, too. We could pitch it as, like, as pairings, right? You know, pairing your heartbreak <laughs> with uh, just some some good old heart, like, soul food from uh, romance novels. Yes. That would be, boy, what a bizarrely niche thing. That, <laughs> that sounds like <laughs> such a fun Red Herring episode, though, where we maybe even, it doesn't even have to be books that we both read. It can be, like... I describe a book to you that I read and then you try to pair it with what you think might be its emotional opposite. Wait, we we absolutely need to do this. We need to do a pairings episode. Yes. Yeah. Do you, so before we close, I did do some 
some research into Kazuo Ishiguro's writing process, but I also... Bless you, Leah, <laughs> for always doing the homework. I... It is so... I, I, gen, I, know, I know that sounds like a bit, and I am uh, amused by it, but it's so friggin' cool and valuable, like, every time. Please and tell me. it's predictable. Me. I'm always gonna do it. Yeah, so... Yeah, that's the part that's funny, but it also <laughs> continues to be delightful and useful and interesting. Yeah, that's good. Um, so, essentially, he was talking about... So, when he wrote Remains of the Day, uh, he was saying that every book that he writes, he has this moment of absolute despair at least several times where he's like, there's no way I'm going to get through this. <laughs> the way he talks about writing is so, it's so great. Like, he he has won the Nobel Prize in Literature and he's just like, yeah, my process is terrible. I don't recommend it to anyone. Uh, he just has a very wry way of talking about it, which I absolutely love. Um, so he said, you know, I'd hit, he'd hit that point in Remains of the Day, and he and his wife decided that he should just go four weeks of, like, no contact with the world, nonstop writing, one hour break for lunch, two hour break for dinner, and then one day off. And it was through that four weeks that he had major breakthroughs. And he said, but, you know, there were moments where I would be talking to my wife, and she said I would just laugh at something out of nowhere. So he's like, there were costs to this. And also I tried it two times afterwards. And it went terrible. And, you know, I was totally ragged at the end of all of these, but it worked this one time and it was great. And for all of the other times, he says that he needs to kind of <clears throat> follow the idea down different paths, knowing that many of them will be kind of dead ends. And he'll do like, mm. essentially, he'll do like 40 pages. He'll just write down basically all of the ideas that he has, essentially doesn't care about grammar, doesn't care about style. He'll just kind of throw out ideas like, maybe she has a kid, the main character, you know, whatever. And then it's afterwards he'll think about, he'll reflect on it and he'll be like, what is the implication of this character having a kid? What does this mean for the story? And then he'll rewrite those 40 yeah. pages over and over and over and over. And then he'll move on to the next set. And he was like, it's an awful process and I wish it upon no one, <laughs> which I thought was deeply relatable. Um, oh my god. Yeah, and finally, something else that I really appreciated was he said that actually, speaking of not, you were talking about how you were trawling through your notes for, um, for ideas, he said, you know, I, as a writer, I don't actually have many ideas, so I, it takes me years to cultivate this one really, really good idea, and I think that's also part of the reason why he doesn't think about genre as much. He's just thinking about what makes a good story and letting other people deal with fitting it. Anyway, as it turns out, Kazuo Ishiguro is not only a brilliant writer, but sounds like a delightful person. Um, <laughs> sounds incredibly yeah. great. Yeah. 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 Um, so if you are suffering through the writing process, don't worry. Kazuo Ishiguro also suffers, and he won the Nobel Prize in literature, so you're probably <laughs> on the right track. <laughs> I, I find that very comforting, too, because I feel like a bunch of that speaks to some of the few things that I've sort of been able to be like, okay, I think these are good, good things I try to remember when writing, right? One of which is that for me, the goal is never, like, I don't, I'm not sure I believe in finding a writing process. I think I believe in finding a bunch of different tools that I can switch between when the other one yeah. stops working. 
Because the number of times where I'm like, oh yeah, this is great. I write in the mornings and everything's awesome. Then I'm like, I don't write in the mornings anymore. I don't know what happened. I don't write at all. I need to walk around my apartment and record myself talking to myself. Cool. Okay. This is a groove. Nope. Can't do that either. Now what's next? Like, it's just about coming up with a bunch of stuff that when you, you hit a wall, you can be like, okay, let's maybe we turn around. Mm -hmm. Where do we go now? We'll do something else. Um, and the idea of like writing, you know, the 40 pages over and over again with like random ideas, I feel like connects back with like why a lot of like writing game exercises can be mm -hmm. so fun. But yeah, I feel like that sort of, that kind of connects with a lot of the, I don't know, throw all the spaghetti at the wall approach that feels most right, even though it's not very efficient. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> Nothing about, I think it's, I think it's also just deeply reassuring to see how many writers just don't have an efficient writing process. It's makes you feel less alone. And I, also during that same interview, someone from the audience went up and was like, I heard that. Uh, when you were writing The Buried Giant, your wife read the first few pages and basically told you to throw them out. And he was like, yeah, pretty much. And um, at first, I, you know, I was like, well, let's let's consider it. But he put it aside for a while and he said, you know, I knew enough about myself at that time to know that I would come back to it. Um, that I could do that and mm -hmm. then he came back to it and he did eventually decide to rewrite it and I think that's that's another thing I, again I've talked about this before I think in the red herring episode when you're a beginning writer I think that there's this fear that the idea will leave you or that you won't yeah. be able to return to it or you know this is your this is your chance and something yeah you'll break it or yeah, you'll and, yeah somehow it'll be lost to you. Yeah, and so it was just the way he said that, like, yeah, you know, I'd done it enough times, I'd put aside a story for a few years even, and I'd come back to it that I knew it would still, it would still be there. And I think that's another reason why I often li listen to a lot of veteran writers, because most of them will say something like that. I mean, there are some who don't, like Elizabeth Gilbert was like, yeah, I put the idea down, and I believe that if you, you know, if you do that, and if you're not paying attention to an idea, it'll leave you, and it did. And I was like, oh my god! Um, but most authors are like, yeah, I came back to it, and it was still there, and it was okay. It's just yeah. the, it's the, it was okay part that is just comforting. It's, and that's important, because I'll say, yeah, like, as much as I don't believe in hard and fast rules about writing, I think that the closest I have to one is that uh, shame, shame doesn't help me. Mm -hmm. Doesn't help me write, doesn't mm -hmm. help me tell good stories, doesn't help me come up with good ideas, doesn't help me be productive. It is a wrench in the works for all of those things. So yeah, I'm here for any time learning uh, from other writers about how to not just beat up on myself for things. Because like, that shame is not, I mean, one, like, shame for what? Seems like everybody, everybody does this, everybody works this way. But also, it's not helpful. Not helpful at all. Mm -mm. Not at all. But I do think this was a very helpful conversation. Yeah! <laughs> I feel the same way. 100%. So thank you so much for wandering with us today on Working Title. 
Uh, We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you've read Never Let Me Go, we'd love to hear your thoughts. What did you get out of it as a writer? Uh, We can continue this conversation on Twitter. You can find us at WorkTitlePod. That's at WorkTitlePod. 